Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is the weekly highlight reel of videos that I have put out on YouTube. So in case you don't know, you can go over to YouTube and watch all of my videos. The channel is History and Coffee, and you can just search for my name as well, Heather Tesco, History and Coffee, and you will get it. And you can subscribe there. Thank you to the many people who already subscribe. And then what I've started doing is weekly highlight reels of some of the videos that have gone out on YouTube that would be of interest to the podcast listeners as well. So thanks for listening. And you can also, like I said, go over and join me on YouTube, History and Coffee, and search for Heather. And there I am. So let's get right into it. Today, we are talking about the birth and short life of Henry VIII's son. No, not Henry Fitzroy, but Henry, Duke of Cornwall, the son that he had with Catherine of Aragon in 1511. So imagine a moment of sheer joy a beacon of hope for a kingdom, the birth of a son, an heir, the successor to a throne. This is the story of Henry, Duke of Cornwall, the son of Henry VIII and his queen, Catherine of Aragon. Born January 1st, 1511, his arrival caused England to erupt in joyous celebration. But his life was fleeting, his existence a mere 52 days. So in this video, we're going to talk about the way England celebrated during those 52 days and the jousts and, and just the general celebration that England had. It was a time of immense joy, both for Henry and Catherine personally, as well as for England, because they had a successor, an heir to the throne after all of the decades of the Wars of the Roses. Um, they knew that the Tudor dynasty was going to continue without any threats. So the streets were alive with festivity the fountains ran with free wine for the populace, bonfires lit at night, cannons blasted from tower walls, and church bells rang for hours and hours and hours. A public holiday was declared, and the entire kingdom joined the party. The New Year's boy, as he was fondly called, was baptized in a grand ceremony. Of course, his mother, Queen Catherine, would not have gone to that ceremony. She still would have been recovering from childbirth. One of his godfathers, King Louis XII of France, sent a gift to the child's nurse, Elizabeth Points, a gold chain worth 30 pounds and also 10 pounds to the midwife who delivered the prince. While Catherine was still secluded after the birth, Henry made a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Walsingham to give thanks for the safe arrival of his son. I think I've done an episode or a mini cast on the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham. It's an amazing place. Uh, Right kind of around the time of the conquest in 1066, there was a woman who had a vision. An angel told her that she should recreate exactly what the room that Jesus was born in, the manger, looked like and, and the home that he grew up in. And, and so she created this, this shrine that people would go to, especially for 
help in childbirth. And the tradition was that you would walk the last mile or so barefoot. And Henry did that. And he went there to, to give thanks and to give an offering and, and to just kind of have a general Thanksgiving for the birth of his son. The prince's birth was celebrated in a tournament, the most lavish that England had seen in living memory. Some say it was the third most expensive event of Henry's reign so far. Henry jousted as Sir Loyalheart in lists that were decorated to look like an enchanted forest. Catherine distributed prizes to valiant knights, followed by a sumptuous banquet in Westminster Palace. Henry also began setting up his son's separate household, appointing dozens of servants and you know, nurses and people who would eventually be tutors. This was 40 men-at-arms for protection, food tasters, a nurse, a lady mistress, and four rockers to rock the cradle. Anybody who has had a child will kind of remember that it's all well and good when you're rocking the cradle, but then as soon as you leave, it all falls apart. And this was before they had swings and things that you could plug in to keep it moving. So Henry hired four rockers who would take turns keeping the cradle moving. Then, of course, on February 22nd, it all ended. The terrible news arrived. The New Year's boy had died. He lived only 52 days. The cause of death remains unknown, but of course, it wasn't that unusual. Um, His sudden death was a shock, leading to speculation of crib death or some kind of respiratory infection. Infant mortality was high in the Tudor era, and this was a cruel example. His funeral was nearly as big as the tournament celebrating his birth. Henry paid 400 pounds for black cloth for the mourner's clothing and for covering the hearse. He was buried in Westminster near the entrance of the shrine of St. Edward the Confessor, though his grave was never actually marked. Catherine was, of course, crushed with grief. Of course she was, intensifying her religious devotion, spending hours on her knees on bare stone to pray, fasting and begging God to send her another child. Elizabeth points the nurse would actually remain a poignant figure in this saga, despite the tragic turn of events. Henry didn't blame her. He actually granted her an annuity of 20 pounds for life, which was an unprecedented display of kindness and understanding in an era, especially from a man known for his quick judgments and swift penalties. The court moved on as courts do, and the celebrations and grand tournaments would continue. New alliances would be formed, new battles would be fought, but the joy of those initial 52 days. The jubilation that his son had brought when he was born would forever be a bittersweet memory for Henry and Catherine and in the annals of Tudor history. For Henry and Catherine, their son's brief life would be a time of boundless happiness. It seemed like it all was going to work out for them. Can you imagine how history would have been different if he had lived, um, if he hadn't died? It was, of course, also then a period of devastating loss and a reminder of how fragile life could be, even for those of royal blood. Today, the exact location of the prince's grave is unknown. During excavations for the new high altar in the 1860s, a small lead coffin of a child was discovered, and it may have been the coffin of the prince, but we will probably never know. His grave stands as a symbol of a life that held so much promise, yet was cut short so abruptly. So here's to the little New Year's boy, 
a prince who lived and died within a span of 52 days, yet managed to leave an indelible mark on England's history. His story reminds us of the fleeting nature of joy, the reality of loss, and the resilience of the human spirit to carry on. Today, we are going to talk about Anthony Woodville because on the video I did yesterday, my latest podcast episode on Ursula Pohl, there was a comment that people were interested in hearing more about Elizabeth Woodville's siblings. And Anthony, of course, is famous for a couple of reasons. First, he brought the printing press to England with Caxton. And I did an episode on Caxton years ago now. Gosh, I think this was around 2013. I I did an episode on William Caxton. Uh, And then he, of course, was executed by Richard III. So there's that whole connection. Um, I hope I don't make any Ricardians mad by saying that, because I don't think that that's disputed. Is that disputed? Somebody will tell me in the comments if it is, I'm sure. Um, Anyway, so we are going to talk about Anthony Woodville. We're going to delve deeper into his life and understand his pivotal role during one of England's most tumultuous periods. Born into the influential Woodville family, Anthony's life was shaped by both privilege and the uncertainty of the times. His father, Richard Woodville, first Earl Rivers, and his mother, Jaquetta of Luxembourg, were well acquainted with the intricacies of court life. Growing up amidst the Wars of the Roses, Anthony witnessed firsthand the shifting allegiances and power struggles of the era. Then, of course, things took a turn for Anthony when his sister, Elizabeth Woodville, became the Queen of England through her marriage to Edward IV. This union was about love, of course. It was, you know, supposedly a a very impulsive, impetuous thing that Edward just completely fell in love with her and just had to have her. But it was also a political game changer for the Woodvilles. With his sister as the nation's queen, Anthony was suddenly propelled into the limelight, finding himself at the epicenter of royal politics and decision making. So in 1464, when Anthony was about 24 years old, his sister Elizabeth, who was a young widow, married King Edward IV. This wasn't just a personal win for the family, it signaled Anthony's ascent into the echelons of power. With the Woodvilles now intimately connected to the throne, Anthony's status skyrocketed. Edward recognized Anthony's potential, granted him numerous titles, including the revered Earl Rivers and Lord Scales. But titles weren't just about prestige, with them came substantial responsibilities. As a key figure in the Yorkist regime, Anthony found himself deeply involved in the day-to-day administration of the kingdom. He wasn't just a passive beneficiary of his family's rise. He was an active participant, contributing to policymaking and steering the course of the country. Anthony Woodville had actually fought for the Lancastrians with his father, Sir Richard Woodville, in the early years of the Wars of the Roses. Then after the Lancastrian army was decisively defeated in 1461, the Woodvilles, of course, supported Edward IV. So then he found himself on the side of the Yorkists. While there were not active battles going on in the Wars of the Roses, Anthony earned an international reputation for his bravery in tournaments. In 1469, his father was killed by rebels under the Earl of Warwick. Edward IV and... Anthony Rivers and other Yorkists were driven into exile 
1470, in October of 1470. And then they returned back to England in March of 1471. Anthony Rivers helped defeat Warwick at the Battle of Barnet in April of 1471. He also then held London while Edward destroyed the Lancastrian army at Tewkesbury in May of 1471. So it's clear that his presence at the royal court wasn't merely ceremonial. Edward valued Anthony's counsel, leaned on him for both advice in domestic and foreign affairs. He played a significant role in shaping the political landscape of the time, ensuring that the Woodvilles remained at the heart of English governance. After 1471, it was clear then that the Yorkists were really in power, at least for another decade and a half or so, and Anthony could focus more on cultural, literary, spiritual concerns. He translated the French moralistic work, Dictates and Sayings of the Philosophers, which was actually the first dated book printed in England. So we're going to talk about his role with printed books. The printing press was changing the game in Europe at this time. Uh, Its introduction was nothing short of a revolution. It's one of the reasons I love this period so much. It reminds me so much of what we are experiencing with the Internet. Um, Suddenly information which had been just housed with an an elite group of people and you had to really go out of your way to, to get that information could now be much more easily disseminated to everyone. And you know, it grew literacy. And over the next hundred years, you would see this huge growth in literacy. You would see the golden age of, of plays and of poems and everything like that. And along with that also were a lot of concerns about how to manage that information, especially from the, the position of people in power who were concerned about misinformation, who were also concerned about propaganda. And uh, you see it a lot in Elizabeth's reign with concern about Catholic pamphlets coming in. Uh, So it really, there's so many parallels to what we are living through today with the internet and social media and everything like that. Uh, It's one of the the reasons I really love this time period. There's just so much that's so similar to what we are living through ourselves. So what does Anthony Woodville have to do with this? While the printing press was making waves across Europe, Anthony saw its potential for England. Rather than just being a spectator, he actively championed its use in the country. Anthony had met William Caxton, who brought the first printing press to England while he was in Flanders. William Caxton was living there. He was a merchant in the service to Margaret of Burgundy. Caxton moved to England in 1476. He brought with him the first printing press ever seen in England, and Anthony became his patron. Anthony had Edward IV's son, also named Edward, under his care at the time, was actually Uh, helping to manage his education, and he decided to translate and print texts that would provide the prince with an education in religion and moral philosophy. And, of course, that's the first book published in England then, Dictates and Sayings, which was a collection of wisdom by ancient philosophers. He was actually making a statement by selecting a work that bridged ancient wisdom with contemporary thought. He was emphasizing the importance of learning from the past while forging ahead with the future. His contributions didn't just stop there. His endorsement of the printing press paved the way for a more literate society, fostering an environment where ideas would flourish and intellectual curiosity was celebrated. It's a testament to his vision that he not only embraced this technological marvel, 
but also understood its profound impact on culture, education, and communication. He was a true Renaissance man of his time and throughout the 1470s, as there was peace and as he was managing the education of the prince, he also made more contributions to English culture and society. He was a patron of the arts. He recognized the power of poetry, music, and visual arts in enriching society. He was a patron of artists and poets. There's actually a plate in the Royal Academy of the Arts. It's one of 180 plates that make up the British School Number no. 1 album, which was compiled in the early 19th century. And this plate that I'm talking about specifically is an engraving entitled Anthony Woodville, Second Earl Rivers, Presenting a Book to Edward IV. And this plate is from 1807. And the engraving underneath says, Earl Rivers presenting his book and Caxton, his printer, to Edward IV, the Queen and Prince, from a curious manuscript in the Archbishop's Library at Lambeth. The portrait of the prince is the only known one of him. And so, you know, it's kind of something to think about what he might have been able to do if he hadn't been busy, I don't know, patrolling the coast against an invasion by Margaret of Anjou or fighting in the Battle of Barnet. Uh, if he had had peace, it seems like he was somebody who really just wanted to patronize the arts and patronize literature. So it's kind of like one of those thought experiments to imagine what he could have done if he had had the peace and the space to be able to do that. His influence and proximity to power made him both a valued ally and, of course, a perceived threat. When Edward IV died unexpectedly, the political landscape changed dramatically. Edward's young son, Edward V, was next in line for the throne. But of course, as history would have it, the young prince's reign would never materialize. Richard, Duke of Gloucester and late king's brother, moved swiftly to secure his grip on power, declaring himself King Richard III. This rapid power play was a direct threat to the Woodvilles, who had been instrumental during Edward's reign. Anthony found himself in a perilous position. He had been the tutor to Prince Edward, and he, along with his nephew, some of the other Woodvilles was arrested by Richard III's forces. They were taken to Pontefract Castle, where good things did not generally happen at that time. There was no formal trial, which showed you know, the precariousness of their situation. He and his compatriots were executed on June 25th, 1483. The reasons given were allegations of conspiring against Richard III, Many historians view this act as a straightforward consolidation of power by the new king. Anthony's execution was not just the end of a prominent figure, it marked the waning influence of the Woodville family in English politics. The tragic end of Anthony Woodville is a somber reminder of the volatility of medieval politics, where fortunes could change overnight and loyalty could often be rewarded with betrayal. Today, we are talking about Wyatt's Rebellion and specifically Wyatt's Rebellion from the perspective of Elizabeth I. So, the mid-16th century was a tumultuous era for England, marred by religious schisms, political intrigues, and the specter of foreign influence. As Catholic Mary I ascended to the throne, the nation's Protestants grappled with very deep-seated fears. Mary's religious convictions were no secret, as she fervently sought to reverse England's Protestant course initiated by her father, her decision to wed Philip II of Spain only intensified anxieties of the populace. 
the perspective was not that it was just a romantic move. Of course, Mary being queen meant that they would have a Spanish king then because the idea of a woman reigning on her own with a prince consort or, you know, somebody below her who wasn't actually the king, women had to obey their husbands, right? So if you marry somebody from Spain, that means he's now ruling England. Many English subjects, especially Protestants, feared the looming specter of Spanish dominance, which might bolster Catholic resurgence and jeopardize England's political autonomy. They were also afraid of the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Enter Sir Thomas Wyatt, a charismatic figure, as rebellious leaders usually are, from Kent, and he stirred these fears. In early 1554, he led a revolt with clear intent to dethrone Mary I and, in the process, prevent her marriage to Philip. But Wyatt was not a lone voice of dissent. His rebellion drew support from a wide range of Protestants, many of whom felt disenfranchised by Mary's policies and feared the consequences of her Spanish marriage. They envisioned a Protestant England, a continuation of what Edward VI had started and what Henry had started, and then Edward VI continued. They wanted to build on that. And for many people, of course, Princess Elizabeth was that hope and a figure of suspicion for Mary's Catholic regime. As Wyatt's rebellion unfurled, Elizabeth found herself ensnared in a web of rumors and speculation. Did she have a role in the uprising? Was she a puppet behind the scenes or merely an unsuspecting pawn? In this volatile climate, even more suspicion could be damning. Elizabeth was arrested and subjected to rigorous questioning. Throughout her ordeal, she vehemently denied any involvement. She wanted to distance herself from the rebellion, and her letters from the period reflect a mix of anxiety, frustration, and determination revealing a young woman keenly aware of the stakes, yet resolute in defending her integrity and her innocence. Amid the backdrop of this, also we need to keep in mind is Lady Jane Grey, who is still alive in the Tower. Of course, Jane was the 90s queen, who after Edward VI died, he had tried to make her his heir, and she was kind of thrust into the limelight, proclaimed queen by the powerful Protestant factions who wanted to prevent Mary from becoming queen. However, Mary was able to consolidate power quickly, and that led to Jane's downfall. Jane is still alive at this point. Mary didn't want to kill her right away. Um, she was keeping her in the tower for safekeeping and to prevent her from being a figurehead for a rebellion, which, of course, is partially what had happened. So the Dudley family, who is her in-laws, had been instrumental in placing Jane on the throne, and they became involved in Wyatt's rebellion. Henry Gray, Duke of Suffolk, and Jane's father joined Wyatt. Jane's father, his daughter, is in the tower, and yet he's joining Wyatt's rebellion, which further complicated the dynamics. Their involvement highlighted not only the desperate attempts to which the Protestant nobility were willing to go, but also underscored the precariousness of Elizabeth's position as royal bloodlines and religious alliances interwove in a dangerous dance of power and ambition. So imagine if it would have succeeded. Would Dudley have tried to put Jane back on the throne then? It's a history's what if, right? That would be a fun. Somebody should write a book like that of like why it's rebellion succeeding and putting Jane Grey back on the throne like an alternative history. I would read that book. 
So if you want to write that book, you'll have at least one person buy it. It'll be me and other people. I'm sure other people would buy it because it'd be interesting. So Elizabeth's in the tower. The atmosphere surrounding the Tower of London was laden with tragic memories for Elizabeth. This is where it gets really sad and really, I just makes me cry. So she was in the same place that her mother had been before she was executed. Elizabeth was kept in the bell tower, which was brought with symbolism. It was the very place that her mother was confined before her execution. The weight of this must have been unbearable. I cannot, can you even imagine? I cannot even imagine. She was acutely aware of the parallel and would have known the serious implications of her imprisonment. And I have to say, I try to cut Mary some slack. I don't go in for this whole Bloody Mary thing um, at all. I try to see Mary's side of the story. You know, she had a horrible time with her mother and what happened to her and her mother is it's just all hurt people hurt people, right? That's what they say. So I try to cut Mary some slack, but I got to say this move of imprisoning her in the same tower her mother was imprisoned in after everything that they went through together, there had been actual sisterly affection between the two of them. Like that is just so 1000% not cool, Mary, not cool at all. So who was with Elizabeth at the time was her governess, Kat Ashley, who was, you know, her very close confidant. Um, She was actually not with her. She had also been arrested and was questioned about Elizabeth's role in Wyatt's Rebellion. She endured the interrogations and she offered no substantial evidence against Elizabeth. By the time Elizabeth was imprisoned, Kat was already under house arrest and so she couldn't be with her. One interesting thing that comes up during this period too is whether or not Elizabeth hung out with Robert Dudley, met up with Robert Dudley while they were together because they were both in the tower at the same time. And it was common for the person who was the head of the tower to have dinners uh, with the noble people coming to his rooms, to, to his table. Um, you know, it was just kind of a common thing that was done to, to treat the noble guests somewhat differently. So it's possible and conceivable that Elizabeth and Robert bonded during their time in the tower together while they were there. Though there's no concrete evidence that they met while they were there. And of course, Robert was in prison because he was a Dudley and the Dudleys were, you know, kind of leading this whole thing. So their shared experience of imprisonment and the treacherous political landscape would be a bond that was between them forever. The bleakness of Elizabeth's situation during her time in the tower cannot be understated. She maintained a facade of resilience, but she must have been haunted by the legacy of her mother's fate. Um, you know, maybe she felt her mother's presence there with her in the same place. It would have just cast a very long shadow over her time. Like, you know, being in the tower is bad enough, but then you got to be there. Elizabeth's release from the tower was not spontaneous. It was calculated, influenced by a lack of concrete evidence linking Elizabeth directly to Wyatt's rebellion. Many of Mary's advisors, including the Spanish ambassador, wanted to see Elizabeth executed. They thought it would stabilize Mary's reign. However, public sentiment was a significant factor. The English populace, particularly the Protestants, held Elizabeth in high esteem. And if Mary had executed her, it probably would have led to a much larger rebellion. So Elizabeth was freed in May of 1554, but she was not fully restored to her freedom she was placed under house arrest. It was sort of a gilded cage situation. She had relative comfort, but she was very closely monitored and her correspondence and her visitors were screened. Her 
relationship with Mary was very complex. They had blood ties when they were younger. They were both very close. There's a lot of evidence that Mary had cared for Elizabeth um, almost like a daughter. Of course, Mary was in her late teens when Elizabeth was born. So she was old enough to be Elizabeth's mother. And when Elizabeth lost her mother so young, you know, Mary really cared for her and and they had been very close. And it's very sad that um, their religious differences and Elizabeth's claim to the throne always stood between them once Mary was queen. However, there were periods of seeming reconciliation. There's one letter after Wyatt's Rebellion that stands out showing this kind of strained bond that they had. Mary wrote to Elizabeth in October 1555, reminding her of the responsibilities they shared due to their royal lineage, expressing her wish for them to be in good sisterly love and friendship, but also reminding Elizabeth of her need to stay within the boundaries that were set by Mary. This encapsulates their dynamic, really, a mix of sisterly affection overshadowed by the politics and veiled threats. Following Elizabeth's prolonged house arrest, Mary eventually had her sister brought back to court in 1558. This was due in part to the failing health of Mary and the clear indication that Elizabeth would soon be queen. During this period, the two sisters were observed attending mass together, an event noted by courtiers as symbolic of their reconciled relationship. Still behind the scenes, the tensions persisted. Mary's reign marked as it was by political turmoil, the religious persecutions, her health, her phantom pregnancies, all of that, it took a massive toll on her health. As her health declined in 1558, the matter of her succession became undeniable. Elizabeth, ever the pragmatist, kept a low profile. Despite their tumultuous relationship on Mary's death in November 1558, she left the throne to Elizabeth, respecting her father's line of succession. Thanks so much for listening to this week's YouTube highlights. Remember, you can go over and subscribe. History and Coffee, Heather Tesco. You will find me there and we'll be back again next week with more highlights from what went out on YouTube throughout the week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Blow northern wind, send for baby sweating. Blow northern wind, blow, blow, blow. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.